You're listening to TIP. On today's show, we continue to revisit some of my favorite podcasts from the past in this Millennial Investing Rewind. If you've missed our previous Rewind episodes, we've started to reshare some older episodes that are my favorites for a few reasons. One, we get a bunch of new listeners each week, so the new listeners may not have heard this episode before. Two, even if you've been listening for a while, you may have missed this episode when it originally came out. Or three, even if you've heard it before, it can be a great episode to learn from again. If you've already heard this episode or you're not interested in hearing it, feel free to just skip it. There's no harm in that, and you can pick up with our new episodes next week. All right, guys, that's all I had for you for this new intro. Everything going forward is going to be from the original show. Hope you guys enjoy it. On today's episode, I'm joined by my good friend, Jim Kreider. Jim is the founder of Intentional Living FP, which helps families achieve early financial independence. Jim helps people navigate the decisions, opportunities, and obstacles that they may face so their money is used efficiently and effectively to serve its purpose in your life. During the episode, Jim and I cover what money really is, the attributes of good money, why an unstable form of money causes issues in an economy, why gold was chosen as money by the free market for centuries, the history of money in the United States, why Bitcoin has value, Jim's thoughts on diversification, and much more. We all use money and interact with it in our everyday lives, but how many times have you asked yourself, what is money? Sometimes we go about our daily lives without realizing that some of the things we use so often and take for granted end up being something different than we might expect once you peel back the layers and look underneath the surface. This is one of my favorite conversations to date, so if you enjoyed it, I ask that you share it with just one person so that they can better understand what money really is. And if you haven't already, we would be very grateful if you've left us a rating or a review to let us know how we're doing with the show. With that, I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Jim Kreider as much as I did. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink. And on today's episode, my good friend, Jim Kreider, and I are going to be chatting about something that a lot of people don't talk about, and that is money. Jim, thank you for joining me today. Clay, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. You know, we were hanging out in Miami at the Bitcoin conference. And one of the things that kind of dawned on me is that money is something that we use every day in our lives. But I don't think a lot of people really understand what money is. I know that growing up and getting my career started, I didn't think a lot about what money actually is. I just knew that I would be in a better financial position if I found a way to accumulate more of it. And today here in the US, we use the US dollar to pay for things in our day-to-day lives. And looking back, money has changed over time. And that's something I wanted to dive into this conversation today. And Jim and I, we both own Bitcoin. We have positions. So we've studied this topic before. And it's an important topic to research for those wanting to better understand Bitcoin. Because to understand Bitcoin, you're going to have to understand money because Bitcoin is an alternative form of money to our current system. And Jim and I, we just had a heck of a time down at the Bitcoin conference. Just so many cool people, you know, got to meet some just really good people. And there's just so much positive energy and just a really fun time. So 
to prepare for this conversation, I read some articles online. There's one called What is Money Anyways by Lynn Alden. That's just fantastic. Then there's the Bitcoin Standard, the book by Safedina Moose. And you know, I find this topic just quite interesting and it's just a really abstract idea. And I think if one understands money, they can better understand the financial system and ultimately make better financial decisions. Even that question itself of what is money really, despite the fact that we interact with it on a daily basis, is really interesting. If you think about other things that are our necessities that we interact with daily, like what is oxygen? Or yeah, what's the air that we breathe? Or what is water? And yeah, I can say like water is H2O. But like I can be honest, like, yes, I know H2O, but I don't know anything beyond that. Like, what really, what does that mean? Like, I don't know, but I'm secure in the fact that water will always be water and air will always be air. But in the sense of like, we could say like, what is food? Like food is something that is necessary for life and that we interact with on a daily basis. So we don't really question what is food until we start seeing food being changed. We see these corporations coming in and getting their tentacles in food itself. And suddenly it's like, hold on, I don't think this is real food. This isn't good for me. You're bringing in a fiat or a fake or whatever form of food. So it makes us question, wait, what is food itself? And I think that's where we're at with money. Hold on. What is money? This is something that seems like it's almost necessary for the perpetuation of life and you know, just continuation of civilization. And we've taken for granted what this is. But now that we see things being hijacked, just like food, we want to say, well, hold on, let's get back to the purity of it. What is this in its essence? So we can understand yeah, the foundations of these things, just like air and water. What is this? So we don't want to take it for granted though. How would you define what money is, Jim? I would say money is a means of communicating, storing, and transferring value. And yeah, I guess what I mean by that, money is a means of communicating, storing, and transferring value. If I were to do an act for you and you were to give me money in return, so I mowed your lawn, you see value in that. And we would agree that there are X forms of money that you would give me in return for me doing the act for you. So for you, that is valuable. Therefore, you assign me a certain amount of money for it. I could then take that that value that you give to me. So I give you something of value, you give it back to me, and I can store that value. Instead of like, you give me eight gallons of milk, like I can't drink eight gallons of milk before they go bad. So instead I get money that allows me to store that value or that energy, as Michael Saylor says, we store that value over time and space. So that is what money is in its essence. And now the very interesting thing with money is that Again, if it's a means of communicating, storing, and transferring value, value can be very, it's personal. And like things that you value may not be things that I value. And things that you value right now may be not things that you value later on. So, right now, a glass of water for you would be worth 20 cents, let's say. But if we were in the desert and you're about to die of thirst, suddenly the value of water is much more salient. Like it's there, you would give anything for it. Yeah. So the level of abundance correlates with what's valuable. If we have drinking water right at our sink, we're able to get it for free. So you don't really value it very much because it's, it's abundant. It's everywhere. It's not scarce. Yeah. It's a matter of like your personal situation. I don't value these things because it's available and abundant. Exactly. But the moment you need it, like it is valuable for you. And of course, that's why there are constraints in the way of monopolizing like commodities and things like that would be very dangerous that who was that? Is it Bill Burr? 
I think he's a stand-up sketch that talks about Nestle wanting to like capture all the rain. And he was like, who are these psychopaths wanting to like capture all the rain so they can sell all the water to the earth? Like we own all the water. Like, of course that could be dangerous because we need water. And if suddenly like if someone controls all the water in the world, like they can charge whatever they want because we have to have it. So of course that's where there's dangers around that because again, money is just a means of stating, communicating your value. So we have to be clear. And that's why money is important because again, it, it communicates that. And we'll get into this later, I'm sure. But having mixed signals with the way that you use your money can bring in a lot of issues like personally, maritally, societally, because money, again, expresses value. And if my money is not being used in a means of something that I believe is valuable, then suddenly there's a contradiction in my lifestyle. And I am suddenly, I'm using an expression of value in a means that doesn't actually suggest what I actually value truly. In researching this topic, what is money? The simplest definition I could find is from Robert Breedlove. He uses the definition of money as a tool used to move value across space and time. And you alluded to this definition. You know, you and I, we work to perform a service. So someone will pay us for that service. Like in your case, it's financial advising, and they'll pay a certain dollar amount or Bitcoin amount or whatever you're charging for that service and the money you receive represents the work that you performed. I know that sounds super obvious, but I don't think a lot of people have boiled it down to that simplest form. I think it's also important to understand that different types of money are better at different things. So, you know, I think it's important to understand the different types of money. For example, fiat currencies like the US dollar are not very effective at transferring value across time because they gradually go down in value as the central bank prints more of it. To help illustrate this, let's look at the price of gold in US dollars over time. In 1913, when the Federal Reserve was created, you could go out and buy an ounce of gold for $20. And today, the price of an ounce of gold is $1,970. So that accounts for a 99% decrease in the value of the dollar relative to gold. And that's not to say that you know the demand for gold has just gone crazy. That ounce of gold is the same thing it was back in 1913. It's that they've just created so many new dollars. And a lot of that is just created through like new debt in the system. Like Interest rates are so low today. So it incentivizes people to take on debt and that increases the money supply. So There's just so many more dollars today that now you have to pay so much more for that same ounce of gold. So fiat currencies are not very effective at storing value across long periods of time, but they are fairly stable just from a day to day, which makes them effective as a currency for now anyways. And when looking at gold, you can flip it and look at, okay, gold does hold its value over time in general, but the big issue is it's very bad at transferring value across space. So if I want to pay Jim for some consulting services or whatever, you know, I have to ship a bar of gold in the mail. It takes a week to get there. I have to pay all these fees to get it there. So it's not very good at transferring value across space. And so that's just looking at just fiat currencies and gold. And we're going to be talking a bit about Bitcoin and how that can play into it as well. Again, just talking through this, it's stuff we take for granted. Just the fact that you said that, you know, the value of gold in proportion to the value of a dollar has there's this 99% difference over the last century, roughly. And yeah, like if we looked at face value, you'd say, wow, gold is worth a lot more. But is gold worth more or is the dollar worth less? 
We have to look at the ruler in which we're using. Like, has gold itself has not changed? Like, there's not that much more gold than there was previously. So, actually, that would mean that the gold itself has inflated a small amount. It's just that the amount of dollars has inflated significantly. So that rulers change, that means of measurement, that means of measuring value has changed the dollar itself. So is gold worth 99% more or not 99% more, whatever, thousands of percents more, or is it the fact that the dollar is worth 99% less? It's these odd nuances that if you don't ponder, life sort of goes on. But I think it's interesting, but also important to think about these things, especially, yeah, you mentioned a moment ago, Clay, that fiat currencies generally do a good job of storing value over short periods of time, which is true. I mean, that's why I personally, I believe it's important to have an emergency fund. But at the same time, we're privileged enough to live in the US where we have a a fiat currency that has been relatively stable over time or short periods of time. However, if you said that to people in Venezuela or in Germany, post-World War One, or all these places are experiencing hyperinflation, their fiat currencies aren't even stable over short periods of time. So there's dangers in having these things that cannot store your value over periods of time. And again, that's a risk with having something that's meant to store value and communicate value is, again, if I mowed your lawn and you give me X dollars in return, I did something of value to you, you received that full, you received 100% of the service. And initially I received 100% of value as well. And let's say we're at a place of, I don't know, 10% or we'll say 8.5% annualized inflation, just for fun, just to make it up a number. That's, that was a CPI print the other day. So uh, 8.5% annualized inflation. Well, a year from now, your mo, that mo, uh, mo that I did for you, you still received 100% of the value. But if I store that in a means that's supposed to store value, I actually lost 8.5%. So I only have 91.5% of the value that I initially received. So that whatever, 8.5% was taken from me by inflation. We could talk about what causes inflation and is that fair and all that fun stuff. But again, when you have inflationary measures, that is a means of bringing in mixed signals as far as the value that I performed and the value that you received. Because again, you still received your full value, but my value was diminished over time that I received in turn for performing an act for you. And you mentioned just the distortion of price signals. We're seeing like huge fluctuations in the price of things like commodities. You know, I live in the Midwest where there's a lot of farmers, you know, you see their input costs and the crop they're producing, the prices of those are just fluctuating so dramatically. Say if the price of an input cost goes up 50%, it's hard for them to realize, okay, is this price change due to changes in demand? Is it due to changes in the money supply? It's, so it's really hard for them to figure out how they can conduct business. And I think that can cause a lot of issues in an economy. Oh, certainly. It's hard to even fathom the changes we would see in a society if we had money that was secure and stable over prolonged periods of time. Of course, like I, so I live in central Texas. There's a lot of people, seems like most people are moving here right now. So of course there is a odd amount of demand versus supply, but like my house appreciated by roughly probably about 50% last year. My town, the average house appreciated by 33% last year. I don't think all 33% of that is because of a supply versus demand issue. I think a significant amount is because of the money issues themselves. So in saying that, it's hard to even fathom the difference we would have as a society if money was stable. 
Like if I knew three years from now, I needed to buy a house and I needed a down payment of $30,000, I wouldn't have this issue of, well, I can save whatever, $10,000 a year for the next three years. Therefore, I'll have a down payment. Instead, right now we're speculating on, well, how much will house prices change because of the Federal Reserve makes this announcement? And if I only can save $10,000 a year, that equals $30,000. But if the house values go up to double, therefore I need $60,000, I have to invest. How much risk should I take in investing? Do I put that in stocks or bonds? Do I buy Bitcoin? Do I hold it in cash? It makes things so much more complicated. And that's all because money itself is not secure. You have to, it opens up this can of worms as far as storing value and growing your value in tandem with the things that you want. Because again, money is a means of communicating things that are valuable to you. And for you, maybe having a house in three years is valuable. So you need to have an equivalent amount of money to be able to exchange for that house that you find valuable. But again, if the means of which you are storing your value is subjugated over time, then it'll bring in these mixed signals as far as the alignment of your money, your your means of storing value, and the thing that you are placing value in, in the situation of house in three years. Brilliant points. Let's transition to talk a little bit about the history of money to help us figure out how we got to where we're at today. You know, humans originally started using bartering to conduct trade. So if I had chickens and Jim had wheat, then we could just make that direct trade of chickens for wheat to get what we wanted out of that trade. You know, once humans had some sort of money to facilitate trade, they figured out that people could specialize and economies could become much more developed. And money just allowed for that development. You know, in studying money, probably the two most important properties of money originally were that money was durable or it doesn't corrode over time, and that it was scarce. If money isn't scarce, then someone would be able to create new units of that money and dilute the value of the existing holders of that money. And this is something you'll find time and time again throughout history. And it's also happening today with the fiat currency units being created by the central bankers. And Saifedean Amus in his book also talks about how money has three primary attributes. That is, Money is a medium of exchange, or it's used to facilitate transactions. It's a store of value, which means that it generally holds its value over time. And lastly, it's a unit of account, meaning that that is what goods are priced in, essentially. Over time, a number of things have been used as money. Humans have used seashells, salt, cattle, beads, large stones, gold, silver, and many other forms of money. And I'll be getting to a story about large stones being used, which I think is really interesting. Saifedean talks about the story in his book where there's these people on this island called the Yap who use these gigantic large limestones that weighed up to thousands of pounds as money. These stones were called rye stones. And the Yap Island was this tiny little island east of the Philippines and south of Japan. These explorers found these limestones on another island that was hundreds of miles away. So since these limestones couldn't be found on the Yap Island, this made them very scarce and a reliable store of value over time because people knew that someone wouldn't be able to just dig up a bunch of these new stones and dilute the value of the existing holders. So the people on the Yap Island realized that it was a better way to facilitate trade using this form of money. And they selected these rye stones you know, around 500 years ago. A lot of these stones were so large and they really never even moved the stones. The community just realized who owned which stone and they facilitated the the value, who owned what that way. And 
Since these were relatively scarce and accepted by the Yap community, they would continue to be effective as money. And this happened for centuries and it worked very well for them. And that was until 1871, an Irish American captain named David O'Keefe stumbled upon the island and he discovered that the island had a very large supply of coconuts and he wanted to buy these coconuts from them and sell them to coconut oil producers elsewhere. But David's problem was he brought in this foreign currency and the people there didn't value the currency at all. They wanted yap stones. That was their money and that's what they valued in facilitating trade. So David just didn't stop there and stop with the answer of no. He went out to the other island hundreds of miles away and he had the technology available to create essentially new rye stones so he could go and buy the coconuts that he wanted. And so David showed up to the Yap Island and many people on the island got upset because David showed up with all of these rye stones to try and buy coconuts. So, you know, they told him, hey, you produce these too easily and we aren't going to accept these. But some people eventually did give in and sold them coconuts because they had these rye stones. So they had these issues of, yeah, these old rye stones that had quote unquote value. And they had these new ones where some people valued them, some people didn't. And, you know, the rye stones eventually failed as money and they had to move on to some other new money. So it's just an interesting story how some actor outside of their economy comes in and just floods the system with new forms of money. And that ends up diluting all the existing holders of that money. And, you know, one thing I found interesting about this is that the rye stones had zero utility. They were 100% used as money. They couldn't be used as anything else. Whereas you look at something like gold, it has this utility value. It's used in certain types of industrial uses or maybe used as a jewelry. So, you know, that's one thing that someone like Peter Schiff argues with Bitcoin. It has no utility value. You know, all it is is just monetary premium. And that's comparing Bitcoin to these rye stones, I think is really interesting because they're both 100% monetary premium. And I think you'll find throughout history, time and time again, that monies that are able to easily be created, and that usually happens with the advancements in technology, that monies that are easy to be created end up being very poor forms of money and just end up not working. Well, one, it's interesting to think about how the, the people were frustrated that O'Keefe was able to easily produce rye stones because they were still the same thing. They're the rye stones they've been using for a long time. But you think when he showed up the first time on the island, and he wanted to buy coconuts, they would not take another form of currency. So how would you expect him to receive coconuts? Well, he would have to either I don't know, get coconuts by working on the coconut farm or somehow procuring the rye stones. If he wasn't able to go out and make them on his own, he would have to procure rye stones. So how would he procure rye stones as a new person to, to the island? Well, he would need to do something of value to that tribe, to the Yap. So he would have to do something that takes energy. Maybe he could have tilled their land or I don't know, like done something for them, fished and provided agricultural, whatever, something for them that caused him to expand, expound energy and bring actually something of worth to them. And then for doing those services, he would have received coconuts or he would have received these rice stones that he would have traded for coconuts. So that would be the means, a quote unquote, fair way of doing this is he does something that in tandem gives them value for the coconuts or the rye stones that he could then trade for coconuts. But instead, he was a capitalist and went and found these things and made them in a cheaper way, which frustrated people. There was no, and this is a common term in Bitcoiners, there was no proof of work. He was able to go around the means of which for centuries, these people had proven that this is a value because it took energy and time and 
labor to produce. And he was able to do it so easily, it frustrated them. Like, hey, you did not actually put in the work. Therefore, the time, you did not show that this actually has value because you didn't trade something of worth for this. So they didn't like it. So that's just interesting to think through. And also, yeah, the utility of money. We could argue, does money have to have utility outside of the form of being money itself, or is it a waste? Not at all. If you look at civilizations prior to them having money, just think about the inefficiencies in their means of trade prior to having money. So if Clay has chickens and I have wheat and I want some chickens and he wants wheat, we can decide upon a fair amount to trade. We bring in a third party here and maybe they each want wheat, but they don't want Clay's chickens per se. And maybe I want some chickens. Well, then Clay has to find a way of getting the third guy wheat in trade for his chickens. So then he has to come through me to facilitate trade. Now take that out to an entire group of people. How do you make sure that each person gets the thing that they want without having this web of transactions? That's what money does. And the better the form of money, the more clear those signals of communication are. Because again, money is a means of communicating value over space and time. So the better the money, the more articulate you can be in communicating value and sharing that. So it doesn't have to have a uh, direct, you know, it doesn't have to be like, oh, well, gold's good because it can, whatever, it's a good conductor or it's pretty to look at. Like, no, the value of money itself or of good money is, it means that we don't have to have that messy means of exchanging value. That is what money is for. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? a tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com 
slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. Yeah, and I think you'll find time and time again throughout history that just stories similar to the Yap Island, you know, money has to be difficult to produce. You know, history shows that the money that has lasted the longest were those that were the most difficult to produce. And that is why gold and silver were money for thousands of years. Despite any new technological innovations over the last century, gold has generally had its supply increase by 1.5 to 2%. And another reason why gold has been a preferred form of money was because of how durable it was. It's said that practically any gold that has ever been produced over thousands and thousands of years, all that gold still exists today and is held by somebody. So the conundrum with any form of money is that there's an incentive for market participants to produce more of it because it has value above its utility. And since there are thousands of years of stockpiles of gold, it's so durable, all of it's still around. It's a good form of money because the gold miners aren't able to produce huge amounts of gold and crash the price and cause those distortions in the economy. And gold and silver are like the only two forms of money that despite all the advances in technology, they haven't been able to produce, call it 2% more of the gold supply. You know, All the easy deposits have already been tapped into around the world. So all the gold they're mining is in these hard to reach places. It's almost like a difficulty adjustment for gold. And the only way there'd be some massive flood to the market is just some like crazy innovation like Elon Musk starts mining gold on the asteroids or someone starts mining gold in the ocean floor or something of that nature. It's just something that would be like this huge innovation in terms of mining gold. So gold is really the only thing on the planet that historically humans haven't been able to figure out how to create more of it relative to the current supply. And despite any large price increases. Like during the 70s, gold had this massive price run, yet we didn't see just a huge influx of the gold miners mining a lot more gold. And this phenomenon really existed for thousands of years until Bitcoin was invented. You know, Bitcoin has a fixed supply cap of 21 million. So any massive run up in price, the miners aren't able to front run it and like mine more Bitcoin. It has this fixed amount that is produced every year that is in the code and that's going down over time. I'm curious, uh, just thinking through gold. And yeah, if you said hypothetically, if Elon Musk was able to mine gold on the asteroid, would we treat that gold in the same way that the Yap people treated the rye stones that O'Keefe was able to procure? It's like, hold on, you cheated the system. This is supposed to be difficult to procure. Or maybe be vice versa. It's like, hey, babe, I got you a gold necklace, some of that asteroid gold, and maybe that would have a premium on it. I don't know. But uh Again, we, we like to see that, hey, this was difficult to obtain because it is meant to communicate value. And if we value something, like usually that's how some sort of importance. And again, if the more valuable something is, the more rare that's going to be. So yeah, if Elon was able to do that one day, which I wouldn't put it past him, I'm curious how we would even treat that. Because again, that would be a, a workaround just like what Keith found. So Lynn Alden wrote this fantastic article called What is Money Anyway? that outlines the history of money in the US. And I wanted to touch on that a bit in this episode. For many years, money in the US was backed by gold. 
since gold isn't very divisible and isn't very convenient to use in day-to-day transactions, people would deposit their gold at the bank and people could have paper claims against that gold. After the First World War in 1934, the U.S. declared that gold was actually illegal to own. So Americans were forced to sell their gold to the government in exchange for $20 per ounce. The dollar was then revalued relative to gold at $35 per ounce, which benefited the government tremendously at the expense of those that had to sell their gold. And that's a 41% price increase in the price of an ounce of gold practically overnight. And that's pretty crazy to think about that gold is this precious metal that is very difficult to produce and was chosen by the free market to be used as money. And the government forced everyone to sell that gold for dollars at a price that was obviously favorable to the US government. So it was illegal to own from nearly 1934 to 1973 so nearly four decades. And in 1944, at the end of World War II, the world came together and put together what's called the Bretton Woods Agreement in 1944. Most countries pegged their currency to the dollar and the US dollar was pegged to gold still. So citizens couldn't redeem their dollars for gold, but foreign creditors were able to. So the dollar was backed by gold during this time period. They weren't able to just magically come up with more gold, but they were able to print more dollars and adjust the ratio between the dollar and gold. Preston is always mentioning how even though the dollar was backed by gold, they were increasing the money multiplier or the ratio between the dollar and gold after the Bretton Woods Agreement to help finance government spending. In 1944, the money multiplier was around 5 and around 1970, the money multiplier increased to 10. So that's just the, the increase in the money multiplier over those years is like a 2.7% inflation rate for those foreign creditors. So then we had World War II in the early 1940s, and the US government no longer had enough gold to back all the dollars that had been created over time since they were financing the war, paying for all these, you know, had all these increased liabilities. So inevitably, in 1971, we had what's called the Nixon shock, where US U.S. President Richard Nixon announced that U.S. dollars were no longer convertible to gold for foreign creditors. So essentially, the whole world was backed by the dollar. And now the dollar was no longer backed by gold. It was just backed by the faith in the U.S. dollar and the U.S. government as the issuer of that currency. Ever since the announcement in 1971, all fiat currencies have been free floating and not backed by anything or not backed by gold. And that's with the exception of Switzerland, which kept its currency backed by gold until 1999. For those of you who aren't familiar, uh, fiat currency is essentially just a government-issued currency that isn't backed by any physical commodity like gold. Then in the 1970s, the U.S. made a deal with the OPEC countries to only sell their oil for dollars, which is essentially created additional demand for dollars. The OPEC countries then received military protection and trade deals with the U.S., That is what we now know as the petrodollar system, which you'll probably hear from time to time when you hear about the history of the U.S. and the U.S. dollar. And a result of this system is that it created a lot of demand for dollars as all the countries around the world needed to trade with it. Because there was this extra demand, this made U.S. exports more expensive and U.S. imports less expensive, which has led to this massive trade deficits in the U.S. We all know how all the products that we're buying like on Amazon, most of them are coming from China or coming from some other country because it's much cheaper to produce those goods in other countries. So the U.S. has just had this massive you know, trade deficit. They've been exporting dollars essentially and importing all these goods. So with the whole world now using fiat currencies, all governments around the world benefit 
from being able to produce those currencies for a cost much lower than the actual value. So it kind of ties in to what we're already talking about. It's not hard to get on your computer at the central bank and just click add X number of units. So there's not much work that needs to be done to create those new units. In the US, for example, if they want to start funding a new government program, it's much easier for them to just print the money themselves rather than increase the taxes on everyone in the US. It's kind of a sly roundabout way of them taxing the people. So being able to print new money is a form of taxation as the value of all the dollars that the citizens are holding go down in value as more units are printed by the government. The coronavirus pandemic is a perfect example of this. The US M2 money supply grew by roughly 40% over the past couple of years. And a lot of that money ended up flowing into financial assets. And you know, you mentioned your home a little bit earlier. To illustrate this, the S&P 500 has gone up roughly 40% in the last couple of years as well. So at a general level, your dollars can buy less of a basket of stocks or less real estate like the real estate in Texas than it could two years ago. And that's in large part just due to the money printing. So that's kind of the history of the US in just a few minutes and how we got to where we are today. You know, We were on the gold standard for many, many, many years because the free market really just selected gold as money. And governments have found a way to go to this government-issued currency. Originally, everyone would deposit their gold at the bank. We would get paper claims against that gold. And then they just kind of cut the link between the paper and the gold. Now we find ourselves today, we're 50 years into just using a currency or a money that isn't really backed by anything. Yeah, it's interesting. The US dollars used to be backed by gold. You could take it in and exchange it for gold itself. Now it's backed by the full faith and credit of the US government. Frankly, as I ponder that, I don't know what that means. Like if I went to the government and I said, hey, I want to give you this dollar, what can you give me in exchange? They would say, well, here, you can have some faith in me. Like, what does that mean? Full faith and credit of the US government, their ability to bomb another country in war, that's why it's valuable. Is it valuable because they're able to enforce that that is money in the US? Therefore, hey, this is valuable in money because we say so. Then the government goes and prints 40% in a couple of years. That sounds like they pulled an O'Keefe on us. They found a cheat code on making more money in a cheap manner that they didn't have to do the work for it. And I was just laughing a second ago, thinking uh, I'm going to be on high alert if the next chairman of the Federal Reserve's last name is O'Keefe. I know it's time. But yeah, it's very interesting to think about these things. And again, just the implications of having unsound money and for someone to have the ability to unfairly come in and, and change what money is or change the value. Because again, you are mixing signals of an expression of value for everyone else who's holding that thing. And yes, if you own financial assets, then you aren't as adversely impacted as someone who doesn't own financial assets. So if you're someone who on one extreme, you own lots of high-end real estate and art and stocks and stuff like that, and the value of the dollar goes down, because we could argue, is the value of your goods going up or is the value of the dollar going down? I would say it's a mix of those two. I mean, right now, I'd say it's disproportionately the value of the dollar is actually going down, but it's a mix of those. But again, if you hold those things, like perfect, you just maintain your purchasing power because you held your value in those goods that are more inflation resistant versus on the other extreme here, if you're someone who lives off of a fixed income and doesn't have any assets and your fixed income is $5,000 per month and you need $5,000 per month to live your lifestyle and you don't own any assets and then the cost 
of the things that you need to survive goes up by 30%. Like my grocery budget's up about 40% over the last year. That's well, partially because my kids are growing, getting bigger and they eat more and they feed a significant amount of their food to our dog. But still the groceries are up significantly. And if you own no assets you can sell that help hedge that inflation and you only have this Again, this fixed income that maybe has a small cost of living adjustment annually or doesn't have one, you just got left behind. And it's things are getting worse for you. And that's where inflation is taxation disproportionately on those who do not own assets. You can take it even a step further. If you own assets via credit or especially cheap credit that is not marked to the market, then you are even further ahead. Like uh, if you in a place that experienced hyperinflation, let's just for fun say, said that you owned a hundred thousand acre ranch in Venezuela. And I don't know, I'm just gonna make up numbers. Let's say you owed a million dollars for that ranch, Venezuelan dollars. Okay. So you owned a let's say a hundred million Venezuelan dollars for this ranch. And that would usually be a hundred years of work. Okay. Well, the Venezuelan dollar becomes worth 100 or 99% less. Well, suddenly you're able to pay off that ranch with, you know, one year of work, a few months of work versus a hundred years of work. So you just benefited disproportionately compared to others. You actually just procured this amazing ranch for one year of work versus the hundred years of work you're supposed to do. So again, the value that you put in was disproportionate to the value that you received because money itself, which is supposed to communicate those things, is supposed to be a clear signal of communication was hijacked by bad money. And that actually goes in with one of my favorite stories about money itself is the glass beads in Africa. Because I think that is very salient to think about how this can have an adverse impact on people who don't understand what sound money is and how cultures and people can get left behind. So Africa, a lot of people groups in Africa used to use these glass beads as a form of money. And they would usually wear them as necklaces. And that was what they used for money. It was was easy to get around and take with you and trade with and everything. And glass at that time was difficult to make. So it wasn't highly inflated amongst those cultures. Well, Europeans started coming in and recognizing that that is what was the means of currency in those locations. And Europeans had technology to make glass very cheaply and easily. So they went back to Europe, made a whole bunch of glass right quick, brought it back down to Africa, but they were smart about it. Smart. They were cruel, but smart. They went just village by village. They didn't, they didn't display it, let everyone know, hey, guys, we're loaded because people would have caught on to that. They went from village to village and they were quiet. They started buying assets, these valuable assets for this money that was not as valuable as the people thought it was. They knew it wasn't valuable. The people didn't know that yet. So they would trade, hey, I will buy your farmland for X amount of glass beads. Oh, perfect. This glass bead communicates this this value of farmland. That is a fair trade. So they would do that. They started buying assets. They went from village to village before the people realized that the glass bead money had been inflated. And suddenly there's this trade-off of things of true value with an inflated worthless form of money. So again, it stole from people because they weren't understanding what money was and they weren't understanding that money had been quote unquote printed or created from a system outside of themselves. And we could argue that is sort of what's happening in like with people with fiat currencies right now, especially with people who don't own assets and are trading their time for something they think is valuable, but actually isn't. It just was created out of thin air and you're giving away something of value. If that something of value is 
is a farmland or something like that, or if that's something of value is you're trading a lot of time working and being away from your family for something that maybe isn't as valuable as we've been told it is. Yeah. You mentioned some fantastic points right there. I think one of the things I took note of is that we're seeing the financialization or just a monetary premium put on all these assets. So like I mentioned how Bitcoin is pure monetary premium. Now, people that understand the dollar is falling in value over time, they're doing everything they can to get out of dollars, especially right when they get it. You know, They get their income, they're like, yeah, I'm going to put 20, 30, 40% of my paycheck, every single one in the stock market. They don't even look at the value of the stocks. They don't look at if stocks are up or down. They just know that stocks over the long run will go up as the dollar goes down in value. And, you know, other people do that with maybe real estate or other asset classes, like you mentioned. And, you know, you hear that another interesting thing to think about is that it actually incentivizes people to take on debt. Like you're saying with the Venezuela example, you listen to some finance people like Dave Ramsey. He's like, avoid debt. Don't get into any debt. Debt is bad. The borrower is slave to the lender. But when the dollar or just the money is falling in value fast enough and you're able to get a loan, say you're able to get a loan for real estate for 3% and the dollar is falling in value at a rate faster than 3%, then all of us are really incentivized to take on a loan for 3%, go and buy a house, rent it out, cash flow it, then your house's value goes up over time and the value of your payments is going down over time. So it's just, you know, it creates these poor incentives in an economy. And you think back to say 2008, the banks were just giving out loans to anybody and everybody and they knew they were quote unquote too big to fail. So it creates these incentives all across the economy that can, you know, really hurt a lot of people in my opinion. Yeah, it punishes prudence and it rewards speculation. And that's why you see so much speculation in frothy markets. I mean, there's so many things that are if in a conservative and traditional valuation. Most things are overvalued right now. But again, how do you assign value when the measuring tool in which we're supposed to judge value is seemingly broken at the moment? That's where speculation comes in and why real estate costs multiples more than it did in 2007. And the, the stock market is outrageously you know, trading these outrageous prices and fine art and wine. There's so many interesting things that people are just buying as a means of speculating, speculating and trying to store their value in because they don't trust the dollar to actually store that value. Oh, I got plenty of questions for you about Bitcoin. You're thinking about this all the time. You're talking with many people. You know, Bitcoin, like I mentioned, is pure monetary premium at its current value today. And it doesn't produce any cash flows like, say, the stock market or real estate. It's totally dependent on just what the market values it from day to day. So how do you grapple with this idea that Bitcoin doesn't have any intrinsic value? And how do you work through that with people wanting to invest in it? I don't see that as any issue. Again, going back to the value of money itself is not in its utility or what people would consider utility, like gold, it being pretty to look at or it being a good form for teeth filling or whatever. Like that is not where I find the value of money. Like its purpose is strictly as a clear means of facilitating trade and communicating value again over space and time. Like that's its purpose. So I don't have any issue there. Really, the people who say that gold is valuable because it has these other properties. Yeah, we could argue. Yes. Again, if Elon Musk was able to mine an asteroid, maybe it would flood the, the market and hurt the value of gold on its means of trade, like as money. 
it would help because more people, we could use gold for its other use cases more so. It's like, yeah, there's that, but like really the people here are saying that gold is worth more than Bitcoin because gold actually has use cases beyond money itself. Like I doubt 99% of these people have ever actually taken their gold bullion and said, you know what? I'm not going to use this as money. I need to conduct energy right now. So I'm going to hook up my battery to my bars of gold. Like you're not, these people who are making these arguments that it's useful, you're not using it. You're not, no one's hooking up their gold bullion and, and using that to conduct energy or melting it down and using it for these different things. Like get out of here with that. Like you're not using it for the things you say it is. You're using it to store value. Like that's why you're using it. Let's just be honest. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. One idea I've been grappling with is my asset allocation in my portfolio. You know, I'm a big fan of Bitcoin. You're a big fan of Bitcoin. You're heavily invested. And an idea you'll hear in traditional finance is that you know, you need to be diversified. You need to be in different sectors of the stock market. You can't have too much exposure to risky, quote unquote, risky assets like Bitcoin. So how do you think about diversification in a portfolio? 
Diversification serves multiple purposes. One, we could argue whether or not diversification is a means of growing wealth. I would say that the fastest, this is not a guaranteed way of growing wealth, but it is more speculative. But the fastest way of growing wealth is through concentration. Most of the people, the wealthiest people in the world did not achieve their wealth by investing 10% in their paycheck into a 401k and buying a broadly diversified portfolio. No, they usually did this by starting a business, which is a highly concentrated position. They are putting their time and their money into a single business. That's like me going and buying 100% of one stock. Like That's what a business is. That's what owning a company stock is. You're investing in that business. So if you're a business owner, you're investing strictly in that one business. And that's how the vast majority of highly wealthy people achieve their wealth is through concentration. Now, I'm not saying that's the right thing to do, especially for most people. But again, we have to call a spade a spade. And concentration generally leads to higher wealth if you make it through the scathing fires of concentration. So you have to be aware of the risks there. Um, now, on that same token, diversification is a phenomenal way. Historically, it's been a phenomenal way of achieving a relatively consistent means of growing wealth over a prolonged period of time at a relatively expected rate. So that's nice. Also, it's a great way historically, again, I don't know it's past performance, who knows what happened in the future, but it is tend to be a great means of preserving wealth. So you know, if you had all the money you need to do everything you want in life, it would be foolish to just keep all of your value or all of your worth in one thing. You want to preserve that. So you're going to buy lots of things to reduce that risk of that wealth being stripped away because one thing fell. So you, that's why you buy a broadly diversified portfolio of goods. So yes, diversification is great. It also helps with people. So people themselves tend to be irrational investors. There's what's called the behavior gap. So the behavior gap, there's years ago, a study was done to see how people's behavior impacts their performance in investing. And I'm, I'm going to butcher the numbers a little bit, but stay with me. The study was done. It pulled the average performance of a bucket of mutual funds. And this bucket of mutual funds returned on an annualized basis, roughly 9%. So those were the funds. Okay. Well, then they pulled a group of investor returns. These investors invested in these same mutual funds that achieved 9%. But these investors over that same period of time achieved an average annualized 7% rate of return, roughly. So how do people have a underperformance by 2% per year when they invested in the exact same things that achieved a 9% rate of return? That can only be accredited to the people. It wasn't the investments. It was people's emotions. We are irrational and we're emotional when we invest. We talk to our neighbors at a barbecue or whatever, our crazy uncle at Christmas, and they say, hey, you should buy this thing because it went up a bunch. We hop in, it starts going down, we freak out and we sell. So we do these things that lead to poor rates of return. And that's where you see this behavior gap. And that's where, again, a diversified portfolio certainly can help because being concentrated can lead to a, an even poorer behavior gap there. Because if you're in something that's moving by 10, 20, 30% per year, you might freak out. That'd be like being with a group of friends at a theme park and everyone wants to get on the roller coaster. You know, you don't really like roller coasters that much. Maybe you don't like heights, but you feel like you should because everyone else is having fun doing it. So you get talked into it and you're like, yeah, it's be a good time. You know what? Everyone else loves the roller coasters. I'll do it too. You hop in, you put your seatbelt on, you got the, the little thing over your chest. You're going up that big hill and it's sort of exciting at first. You got the butterflies in your stomach and you're getting pumped. Then right when you get up top, you realize, you know what? I don't really like this. And you hit that big drop and you decide, yeah, this isn't for me. So you take off your seatbelt 
You don't want to do that. That's a horrible idea. Yet that's how most people invest. We get pumped up because we see our friends excited getting on top on the roller coaster. We hop in there with them. The roller coaster starts going down. We decide to bail out and just get destroyed. You have to consider your behavior when you're investing. Again, diversification, that helps out with maybe not uh, being on such a crazy roller coaster. Yeah, I 100% agree that a lot of investing is definitely behavior and human psychology can work against us because you know you want to buy low and sell high in investing, obviously, but most people like you mentioned, do the opposite where they buy high and end up selling low, just buying into the hype. I really wanted to ask you, as someone plans for retirement, they need to decide how much money they need when they retire. And if they're invested in Bitcoin, they see these past returns of call it 150% on average over the past 10 years or so. And that's just the average per year. Some years that's way higher than that. Some years it's down drastically. And in projecting how much you'll have when you retire, you have to factor in, you know, your call it 10% Bitcoin allocation. How can someone project what their returns are, you know, if Bitcoin is part of their portfolio? Is that something you're actively doing or how do you determine how much someone saves? And if you can expand on that idea. That's a great question. It's it's a frankly, it's a difficult thing to do because of the volatility. So there's a number of things that we're doing to consider allocation and expectations and like track your portfolio in tandem with what the portfolio is there to do, which is to serve the purpose of you being able to do what's important to you in life. So your money, I know earlier at the very beginning, you asked me what money is, and I gave you more of a theoretical and like dry answer. But money, I say this all the time, money is simply a tool and a resource to help you do what's important to you in life. Like That's what your portfolio is. It's a means of helping you do what's important to you. So that's what we're tracking. Um, anyways, going back to it, there's a few things we do. One, because of the age demographic I work with, we do not utilize at this moment a Monte Carlo simulation. So a Monte Carlo, for those who aren't familiar with that term, a Monte Carlo basically pulls your current financial data, and then you state what you want to have in the future. If in 20 years, you want to have X dollars for the rest of your life, and you want to live, you expect to live for this long. And then the Monte Carlo grabs a whole bunch, usually thousands or thousands of possible market performances and maybe different inflationary rates and says, hey, based off of all these possible market scenarios, your expected probability of success is X percent. So if just for instance, if you have a million dollars right now, and in just to be real simple, in one year, you need a million dollars, like you're probably going to have a Monte Carlo that's going to say, hey, you have a 99% chance of success. Well, the longer out your time horizon and the more volatile the investments themselves and the more unknowns you have, the more wild the Monte Carlo will be. And because of that, the average person I work with is going to be like typically late 20s to late 30s. I would say average is about 33-year-old married couple who's just now getting in stride with their career. So a lot of families I work with right now, maybe they're making between 80 to 200,000 of income, but expect to eventually be making four to 800,000 of income. Well, how on earth are you supposed to consider that with a Monte Carlo projection? Or how do you consider the fact that right now you're employed, but you're also starting a business that there's a very good chance that you're going to be able to sell for $3 million when you're 46. How do you consider the fact that right now that Monte Carlos have been using a set two and a half to 3% inflation and now CPI is eight and a half. And I would argue that inflation is far higher than eight and a half percent. How do we consider that? How do we consider an investment that has grown on an annualized basis of roughly 150%? So one, we don't use Monte Carlos. So what do we do? Well, one, we track on a very regular basis, your net worth, 
but also how is your net worth serving the purpose of your financial independence? And what I mean by that is net worth is obviously just your balance sheet of, of assets versus liabilities equals net worth. That's good to track. However, that can be deceiving. Like if you have a net worth that is primarily concentrated in a corn farm and you want to retire, but you don't want to sell that asset, you want to leave it to your kids, it's going to be difficult for you to actually understand how your net worth is serving your ability to retire. So we take it a step further and we look at, I just call it your financial independence number. So what we do there is first off is fixed income during financial independence. So that's going to be if you own rental properties or oil rights or a trust fund, or even if you said, if Clay, you said, hey, Jim, I want to quote unquote retire at 45, but between 45 to 65, it would be amazing to be a barista at a local coffee shop. We would take a super conservative number there. We'd say, perfect. If that's what retirement is for you, you're still working a little bit. We'll say you'll earn X dollars. We'll plug that in for fixed income in financial independence. So we take that number. And then we do a 4% distribution of investment assets plus cash. That's going back to the Trinity study or the 4% safe withdrawal rate. We add those two together. Then we take your desired income during retirement or financial independence. So Clay, for right now, let's just say that you had $10,000 of fixed income through a rental property. You had a million dollar portfolio. So a 4% distribution rate is $40,000. So you have $50,000 of fixed income plus a 4% distribution. You want $100,000 during retirement. So right now you're at a 50% financial independence number. Okay. So that is something we track on a very regular basis is, are you trending to reaching financial independence? Now, the good thing there is that your, your financial independence number is going to change over time. Your assets are going to change. Your fixed income amounts are going to change. And also your amount that you need to live the life you want when you're retired is going to change as well if we're tracking this on a regular basis. So we're going to be able to see in real time, are you trending in the direction of getting to 100% financial independence? So we don't use Monte Carlos. Instead, we track on a very regular cadence of seeing, are you trending towards this financial independence number? We put a heavy emphasis on behaviors we can control. So increasing your savings rate, increasing your earnings potential. Yeah, we try to be... The best thing that you can do about your financial situation, especially during frothy times, is just be flexible. So we don't count on Bitcoin performing 150% per year. That would be a horrible idea. I hope it happens. The way I'm invested says boy, I'm betting big on this, I guess. That's not something I'm riding on. Like Personally, I am highly, highly allocated to Bitcoin and that space, but that comes with my risk tolerance. So risk tolerance is how much risk can you stomach taking? Again, that goes back to the roller coaster. Are you okay with going down those big drops? If not, let's put you on a different ride. So that's risk tolerance. Also, I have the risk capacity to invest in aggressive assets. Risk capacity is actually your ability to take on a certain amount of risk or even not take on a certain amount of risk. So if if you're a newborn baby, you literally don't have the capacity to be on a roller coaster. Maybe you're the bravest newborn ever and you want to ride the roller coaster, but you can't. It's too dangerous for you. In the same way, someone who needs a certain dollar amount during retirement, they don't have the capacity to invest in something hyper-aggressive or at least in a concentrated manner. In the same way, vice versa, if Clay, you're young, if you wanted to save for retirement strictly through holding your value and your money via the US dollar, you don't have the capacity to do that. You would have to save more than 100% of your current income in order to be eventually financially independent just because the deflationary characteristic of the dollar. So you don't have the capacity to do that either. So we look at risk tolerance, risk capacity. How do I do that? I have that capacity because of my earnings rate, my very high savings rate, 
um, and then just my personal future position. So that's how another way we look at those, monitor those conversations or have those conversations with families that we work with. I think something that's also important is that you're building a business and that business has value. So you're earning income from that business, but the equity value of that as your income grows, the equity value of that business is going to grow as well. So come retirement time, if you decide to, you know, retire, go off to the beach or mountains like you like doing, you know, whether Bitcoin performs or not is almost irrelevant because that business will likely be able to provide whatever you need should you decide to sell it or, uh, you know, just delegate all the tasks to other people. Exactly. And that would go into risk capacity. Like I have that ability to take that risk. One, because I'm very, like I have built my personal and my family's, our personal financial plan based off me not having to work by the time I'm 45. I'm 32, 13 years to not having to work and continue living the lifestyle that we want. Now, worst case scenario for those listening, like that was, you know, with air quotes, worst case scenario, I can't retire at 45. Boo hoo. So I have a lot of flexibility in my plan. So I'm okay with that risk or volatility. Something else I want to mention as well is to consider sequence of return risk. That is really, really important, especially with people as you approach as you approach retirement or needing the assets from an investment. I take a lot of heat from different podcasts I've been on or Twitter spaces from Bitcoin maximalists. I think it makes sense and is prudent to have a US dollar emergency fund. I think that's smart. I've taken a lot of heat for saying that from Bitcoin maximalists. They think that that's foolish and you should have everything in Bitcoin. Even if Bitcoin goes up by 200% per year, which it did in the past, but who knows if that's going to continue. What if you have poor sequence of returns? So Bitcoin drops by 50%. That's really normal. What if that coincides with you needing some liquidity to you need a new car or whatever? Well, you, you're hosed. So same thing. If you have too high concentration in a single position and that coincides with you needing to access those dollars or that money, you have to have a means of being able to stay afloat until that position has recovered. And that's why people who are retired have to look at portfolio sizing and positioning so you can absorb these volatilities. Um, That goes with the 4% safe withdrawal rate, the Trinity study, the portfolio they used. Again, that's where flexibility and concentration and diversification comes in to serve all of these things. Again, sequence of return risk is a very real thing that you, again, I think a lot of Bitcoin maximalists maybe who are listening to this sometimes downplay because you're looking, I don't want to say like it is important. And that's one thing I like about Bitcoin people is they tend to have a long time horizon, which is fantastic. Most people don't have a long enough time horizon, but I would argue that maybe you want to also keep a long-term time horizon for 99% of it, but you want to consider tomorrow just in case. Yeah. I also think a USD emergency fund definitely makes sense because although the dollar does go down in value over long time periods, there are some periods where it can increase in value very rapidly. Call it the 2008 financial recession. When you looked at the price of the dollar relative to anything, the dollar was going like skyrocketing in value. And you know, you don't want to be in a position where you have to be forced to sell at inopportune times. And there's one more question I wanted to ask you in relation to financial planners. It seems like there's still just so many people who haven't really come around to the idea of Bitcoin at all. And you're in talks with many financial planners. You know, is it the difficulty of the subject around Bitcoin or is it just something that's just so foreign to them or have they already made up their mind? What's your thoughts on why they are open or haven't come around to this idea? 
I think it's a few things. One of them is, and I'm what's called a certified financial planner or a CFP. And CFPs generally are trained in a very conservative manner. So maybe that has to do with part of it is like CFPs, we are sort of brought up in a way that we look at things in a conservative way. We see this asset that sounds like it's too good to be true. Therefore, we throw it out. We throw out the baby with the bathwater. I'd say that's possibly one of the reasons. Two, financial planners, or at least the good ones, in my opinion, are busy trying to constantly learn about tons of new things. So like a lot of people on the outside the industry, they think what I do is investment management. Investments is probably the smallest and most commoditized part of my job, actually, even though that's what I spend a lot of time talking about on podcasts, that's actually relatively commoditized. So me and my CFP cohorts, we're constantly staying up to date on tax legislation and estate planning and insurance and all these parts of your financial life. So reading up on Bitcoin is not necessarily top of mind for most CFPs. They're trying to stay on top of a ton of other things as well. So maybe, and this is why I found a lot of conversations I've had, the last thing that these financial planners read about Bitcoin was maybe an article in 2017 saying that by 2022 or whatever, Bitcoin's going to consume 100% of the world's energy. There was literally like, that's an article that I was quoted a few months ago from a, a colleague of mine. She was saying like, oh yeah, well, I read an article that at some time in the distant future, I was like, hey, that actually, that article said that right now I'd be using all the energy. I think that's part of it. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt and saying that they are busy and they're trying to learn so many things. So they are wildly out of date on that. And also, I'd also, I would lump in there as well, diversification. We're again, we're trained to diversify. We're trained to make sure that people more so preserve their wealth rather than grow their wealth. That's what most financial planners work with. Most financial planners are working with people who are about to retire or just retired. They're trying to preserve wealth, not grow it. So they're incentivized to look at more diversified assets. So even if you throw in Bitcoin, it's usually in the same conversation as blockchain or crypto. That's why you have people in Bitcoin or in the traditional finance who integrate Bitcoin a lot of times throw in Ethereum and these other altcoins as well, because they're looking at as a diversified stance and also looking at through not diving into Bitcoin as much as you need to, to understand that what Bitcoin actually is versus what these other things are. Jim, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. This was one of my favorite conversations to date. So I really appreciate you coming onto the show and we'll have to have you back on yet again sometime. This is your second appearance on the podcast. Before I let you go, where can the audience go to connect with you? Yeah. Clay, thanks again for having me on. It was fun hanging out in Miami. I enjoyed it. Um, yeah. If anyone wants to talk, you can uh, go to my website. It's intentionallivingfp, as in financial planning, intentionallivingfp.com. Um, on there, there's a link to my calendar. You can put 15 minutes on there if you want. If you have just a one-off question about Bitcoin or what is my 401k, or if you want to talk about working together, put 15 minutes on my calendar. I'd love to answer any questions you might have. You can follow me on Twitter. Uh, it's Jim Kreider TX, as in Texas. Happy to talk with you on there as well. Awesome, Jim. Thank you. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you can get these episodes delivered automatically. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review on the podcast app you're on. This will really help us in the search algorithm so others can discover the show as well. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There you will find all of our episodes, some educational resources, as well as our TIP finance tool that Robert and I use to manage our own stock portfolios. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. 
Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.